Hi, welcome to the 25th episode of the Mag Culture Podcast. I'm Jeremy Leslie, and I'm at the Mag Culture shop where we've set up behind the scenes while customers shop out front. Listen carefully and you might hear the door opening and the courtly bells ringing out from City University next door, the bane of our sound editor Sam's life. We're going to be digging into the culture of magazines with two guests this episode. Felix Burkter has just marked the 30th issue of his architecture magazine pinup. He joins me from New York via Zoom to talk about the special anniversary issue that's now on shelves. Meanwhile, here in London, Pentagram partner Marina Willer has just redesigned a long-standing icon of British film publishing, Sight and Sound. She joins me here at the shop and she's just out the front flicking through some magazines to share with us shortly. Before we come to them, a quick mag culture update. It's high summer here in London and the city is opening up day by day. It's been a relief having the shop back to full service and in fact we're trying to work out how to fit more magazines in the space due to demand. But what we're really looking forward to is the return of our live events. And we've been busy planning for later this year, so keep an eye on the journal for news of another edition of our Flat Plan Masterclass and also the return of Mag Culture Live in real life. Plus, we're working with one of our favourite magazines to help them celebrate a special anniversary here at the shop. Sign up to our weekly newsletter on the website for full details of them as soon as we announce them. Back for now, I'm delighted to welcome Marina Willer, who's a partner at the London office of Pentagram, the uh, international design studio. Marina, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. So excited to be here. No, it's lovely to have you here. Uh, are you well? Has, has the last year treated you well? It's been very weird and insane, um, but I think we've managed to do work that we're happy and proud of, but it's very much against the odds, I think. It's a strange world, isn't uh-huh. it? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, we've just been out the front looking at some magazines and uh, you've, pull, you've pulled one out. We're going to come to that in a minute. I, I've got one here. Um, maybe, do you want to just uh, introduce the magazine that you've selected there? Yeah, that wasn't any sort of big intellectual choice. It was just pleasing to the eyes, uh, a bit of a feast. Uh, it's called Tide Magazine, but I like that it deals with uh, paradoxes and... and uh, some kind of contrast between things uh, and dialogues, which to me is important. Also, a cover that only has uh, <laughs> a bit of a description rather than a logo or anything. It, it feels nicely unconventional and a good balance between structure and surprise. It's a nicely put together magazine. It's very, and there's lots of great imagery in it. Um, but yes, good choice. I've got one to put in the mix, which is very, could hardly be, well, it's, there are similarities. It's called Amalgam, and um, we actually we put a post on the journal about it recently, but it's a design magazine from Illinois in the States, and it is purely black and white, and I could go on at length about the typography and such like, but I want to just share with you, it's just the nature of the black. It's delicious, It's really isn't proper it? black, yeah. which is really hard to achieve, and that's something... Well, yeah, it's got a really beautiful texture as well. Um, mm. and, and, and the paper's really white, so you get this kind of real black and whiteness, which is yeah. you almost only ever really see on a screen, and yet it's in print. Anyway, yeah, it's really deep. But again, there's no proper masthead or logo on the cover, so maybe we've um, got a little theme going there. But to the project in hand that you've, you're here to, to talk about, um, you've just overseen the revamp, the relaunch of Sight & Sound magazine. Yes, we've... 
super lucky and proud because I am a film lover and make films as well as being a designer. So it, it's a real treat to be able to to work on this brand. And uh, it's been a journey. We did the, the project once and then they changed the editorial team and we did it again. Uh, but we're still very happy or just as happy or more than we were with the first iteration. So it's been a real treat. In the case of something like this, this is a long-established magazine. It's been around since the 30s. Uh, it's part of, you know, it's, it's had different roles over the years, but it's kind of part of the kind of cultural fabric, certainly of, of London, but this country is, is you know, pr- promoting the idea of film. That's not a small project. How, how long has this taken? I mean, how long do you spend on something like this? I think the second time that we did, the first time was longer because we, it's always also about the client's, uh, mechanism to approve things and meetings and so on which was before lockdown the second time with a new editorial team and following the you know mainly the head editor has taken his role and uh, I think it's been about six months working on it Mm -hmm. Um, but we we have with these things uh, of course we approached as a an entire brand and trying to think of it not as just a magazine but a an ecosystem, but of course the magazine is the heart of it. If we wouldn't be crazy to say, you know, yes. the digital form is as important. It's just that there's a lot of things that can be saved for the magazine, whilst other things can happen as they grow um, and progress at the brand. They, they can happen in different platforms. So it gives the opportunity to make the magazine much more editorial, m- more curated. More uh, not trying to cover everything because they were a bit of a timeout of yeah. film, yeah. so you would get reviews of everything, and that's quite hard because it's so dense and so much to. Um, but with the nature of times now, you can look at reviews at real time. Why would you leave it for the magazine, which is monthly? So it makes sense to make a magazine a bit more as a collector's kind of object. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and from my point of view, what's exciting is it feels, it does feel like a more collectible item. It's a more of a, it's, it's more for want of a word, more magazine-y in the sense that it's, it feels, we sell it here in the shop. We've stopped it for some time and it sells well for us, but it, the, 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 the presentation of the magazine felt a little out of kilter with the rest of our stock. Now it feels like it's, fits in very comfortably alongside the magazines we're stocking. Was that a part of the idea of what the development would be? Yes, I think we deliberately made it more uh, of something that feels... uh, Because you have sight and sound and then you have something like Cahiers de Cinema as an equivalent. So they are really the most... Uh, prestigious or respected authorities in in film uh, and I think it's been a bit overlooked in terms of brand and you know with all these things the difficulty with funding and all these other things that uh, it you get to that point where the brand then starts to really not reflect what they're about so we started thinking about the brand as a whole but of course with magazine in the center but not trying to make it too arty or hipster because we know this is a publication that is trying to talk to everyone about films. So it's quite approachable at the same time. It's not challenging or anything. It's just more relevant to our times and feeling much more curated. So it's a bit more space and a bit more 
care for the details. Um, so that's how we are trying to position it now. Yeah, that comes across well, I think, in the finished result. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, the, the September issue's out now. There are four different front covers, which, again, feeds into that kind of collectability idea. Pick your cover. Um, but also one of the key parts of the change is, is the new um, logo. To back, back to logos, with, perhaps ironic that we both selected two, mag two magazines to talk about earlier that didn't have a logo. But here, here we are looking at the logo, and, and it is, um, I mean, the first thing I need to say about it is that it is a relief to have the word and instead of an ampersand, which is a detail, but the previous iteration had sight, ampersand, sound, which always felt cheap to me. Um, but it's also, it's, it's based on an earlier logo, right? Yes, and that was using uh, Eurostyle as a, a typeface. But the decision, also we always do a proper archaeology kind of journey mm -hmm. into everything that was there before and the DNA of that organization mm -hmm. because it's not about us creating something cool. It's really about celebrating what is in their essence. So found that, and that was working very closely with the editor, Mike Williams, uh, very, very, uh, it's been really exciting to work with him because he was very open to all these changes. He was suggesting some of those changes uh, and specifically the end was something he was very keen to do. And I think, again, it's back to being less like uh, language of commercial world and using an editorial tonality, which even in a small thing like that, you establish that direction, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and there is also that this comes from a, a, an era where film was very much indisputable in terms of its place in theatrical cinemas uh, and, you know, it's something that you enjoy together in a certain way. I know the times have changed and now streaming and uh, through different platforms is the norm, but there is still something about film which comes from that place and we try to also, without being too overtly sort of nostalgic, but celebrate that history with the use of black, with the choices we made in terms of typography and, and some of those things. So, and that era was very much a time when, you know, we wouldn't even question the place yeah. of film in the yeah, world, yeah. whilst now it's really hard for cinemas to even survive. And, you know, it's a complex and, and situation. We're, and, we're, and we're looking back there, it's the sort of 60s, 70s. 70s. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It feels far more authoritative as that's a magazine That's good, now. yeah. I, mean, that's I think the, that... That it had become, I mean, purely, you know, is 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 to do with uh, not having, you know, every brand needs a bit of love sometimes, right? Or every magazine, and I think it just was overlooked. But I, I personally, always saw it. Even the color yellow, all of that, made it look much less special than it should be, and and much less editorial. Um, so hopefully, and everything we could do in terms of choice of paper and, and even changing the stock a bit. It's very simple things. It's not rocket science, but it's just giving mm -hmm. the right attention and the attention to detail. Also, we learn from the digital world and then we can bring some of those ways of organizing information, as you know, uh, come back to the print editorial world. And, and that's simple things that I think help to design something like this today rather than... 30 years ago. 
And uh, alongside the kind of um, the archaeology, as you described it, in terms of looking back on the archives and seeing what had happened in those what eighty odd years yeah, of, of history. Um, did you also l- sort of investigate doing new logos and? Did you try out, out new ideas as well? Or, or? That's what we did in the first round. Mm-hmm. And then they had this internal change and they said, look, I think we have slightly new vision. And so, and I really liked the work we did then, but I, that was more ideas-based and trying to position this sort of um, an angle or the idea that they had a, a perspective and they are editors, not just reviewing everything under the sun. So we were trying to express that a bit more and therefore we designed uh, options. And Everything we've done is in animation first as well because mm-hmm. obviously it's so important. Um, but then with this, when we found and it was together with Mike, it was just like a no-brainer. This is so interesting and it's got the, yeah, the uh, authority uh, not in a bad way, but you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, it's bold and all of that. And uh, you've you and your team um, have overseen the redesign. How is it going to work going forward? Are you going to be producing it on a monthly so basis? So we, we actually designed the first together with one of their designers worked with our team. There's one of my designers who's you know really been incredible at clever um, in my team is also Brazilian has been so invested in every detail, mm-hmm. pure passion. Uh, so that made a difference because it's so much work, as you know, and when we're doing other projects alongside. Uh, so we actually designed most of the issue with this, the help of one of their designers. And we're going to design the second one as well because that helps us fix anything that we feel mm-hmm. could improve. Also gives them a bit more time to to get used to the sort of... Uh, structure and mm-hmm. framework, and I'm interested to, to sort of look at it in in the context of a, a larger organisation like Pentagram, where there are some really kind of big editorial names as as part of the business, as your fellow partners. Do, do in a situation like this, when you know, because when you're talking about the magazine, you're, you're clearly very much looking at it and talking about the brand and 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 that's your background and that's what you're you know the, you're talking very eloquently about that side of it do you, do you find yourself you know you've got designers on your team who uh, you mentioned Clebor who I think is involved yeah. with Sabat magazine he's, yeah so he he's, does he's, a few yeah, he's yeah, very yeah, passionate yeah. about yeah. that as well um, which yeah uh, but then can you also call upon the likes of Matt Willey or yes, DJ I, Stout in the States who are both kind of magazine specialists and I think Oh my God, I feel very humble because I think they all know so much more about magazine design and Astrid and, you know, Matt is, uh, you know, unbelievable. Um, but, you know, I, I did talk also to Luke a little bit in the yes, beginning, just yeah, chatting yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and nothing. Um, but very much in a pentagram way, I think since I started working there, I started to do projects that weren't, what I thought I'd be doing and it's such an interesting thing and the good thing about branding as such is that it helps you come from a vision first rather than the grid or the look and the feel you think what's the vision we're trying how does this work digitally and for broadcast and and then we're thinking holistically about it so for me it helped to establish decisions Mm -hmm. 
I mean, if, if someone like Matt was designing, it probably would be a, a lot more beautiful. But I think it's a different type of approach, isn't it? And we all learn from each other in a way, just by being in the same, you know, like you said, the DJ or, you know, Paul, I'm constantly like learning so much. So that's the lovely thing about Pentagram exhibitions I didn't use to design before. And just by being there, I felt confident and then started to do mm-hmm. things like that. And I think that's... Uh, one of the interesting aspects of our studio and business as it is. Sometimes I think uh, when people sort of envisage a redesign, they immediately do, as you say, jump into the grid and the typography and the choice of this type or that type. But the vision thing here is really important, isn't it, in terms of reflecting the content in terms of films? Yes, and I think, at least for me, I always find that is the way I like to design and work with my team is to think about the design vision, what it needs to do, what it needs to communicate. And part of it was that celebration, not in a nostalgic way, but a film as such. And, and with an understanding that now it's, it's shared in many different platforms, including theatrical cinema. Um, but we use then things like a structure and the typography that comes from the pla- the placards uh, of filming mm-hmm. um, and then we maintain their visibles. I know that's also part of our times, there's no rocket mm-hmm. science, but it, it came from that place and the use of black rather than any tones to go back to that. Uh, and then other elements were just purely a bit more editorial than where they were at, which was more sort of almost like the weekly timeout kind of, you know, it, it it disappeared a bit in that world. And like this, you both value the editorial quality, but also the love of film and that structure that brings... And, and placard, which is the type... It's got quite a few different uh, looking fa- um, weights, so it gives you quite a flexible system for different topics and types of film uh, and types of uh, articles. Well, it's a great first issue, so... Um, and I, I, just to, I mean, in danger of repeating myself, but it, from my, from our point of view here, it sits so much better in the context of what we're doing, and I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. So, um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. But um, it's an honour. I hope, I, I hope you stick around because we're going to come back to um, to our back issue shortly, and I'm sure you, you know we, we've got something to um, share on that. Before we look back, though, let's cross to New York to meet Felix Burichter, the man behind the magazine for architectural entertainment, Pinup. The 30th issue has just been published, marking 15 years of the magazine. We caught up recently on Zoom. Felix, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you. for Thanks for having me. Um, so you're uh, at home in New York at the moment? That's right. Um, I'm in New York, and uh, uh, you're in London, I suppose. Uh-huh. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm here at the My Culture Shop, um, where we've been um, we've been enjoying your new issue. But uh, before we come to that, just tell us a little bit. I mean, what has London's kind of opening up for, from the pandemic right now uh, in 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 ways that are both kind of eerie and and happy. Uh, how's New York? New York is experiencing a bit of a hangover from the opening up in June. Uh, I uh-huh. think you know there was a lot of People were really going out and uh, partying a lot in June. It, it was like a New York felt like one big party um, because things were 
uh, allowed to open up again. And, you know, most people, at least in New York City, are uh, fully vaccinated, um, have been actually for a while. So it was, the whole city felt like a big party. And then I think now people are partied out. <laughs> and, and also, you know, I think the, the, you know, now the news with the Delta variants and, uh, and is, is um, I think the, the party, the big party is over, but it's it still feels remarkably normal, especially compared to, I just got back from Milan and, and um, it, it's not quite the same. New York feels a lot more open. Mm-hmm. We had a, actually, I mean, just to give you an example, we had an event um, in, uh, people are still hungry for, I mean, you know, you really, especially when you plan something, it used to be that you'd be lucky if, if a handful of people show up because there were so many things happening at once. And uh, we did this talk, it was related to the issue, it was a design talk. And uh, about a story that in the 30 Objects story, which I co-curated, and it just published in the anniversary issue. And um, we expected about 60 people to show up, and we had uh, 300. So it was a Dover Street Market in New York, and uh, that was a real surprise. <laughs> I don't think pre-COVID that would have happened. Interesting. I guess I guess people do have a hunger. It's, it's good to know because we're we're, we're just a planning our kind of uh, late summer um, uh, autumn events here but we haven't been able to do an event for 18 months and we're hoping people are going to be equally hungry oh i think they are i mean do it, do it while the weather is still nice because you know you can, you can spill out into <laughs> yeah well we're, we're in london so so the weather uh, has, <laughs> sometimes it's nice it's right, right, right now today it is cold and it is raining so um but nonetheless nonetheless in New York, it is warm and sunny and everyone's partying. I get it. I get it. I, I, I want to be there even more now. Um, but listen, the, the anniversary is a significant one. It's uh, 30 issues, 15 years. Right. I, uh, I'd like to just take you back to that, to the very, very beginning briefly before we come right up to the now. Um, can you remember what it was like when you first launched the magazine? The, the kind of the... The, the the hopes you had for it and the expectations you had for pinup when you first started it yes um yeah i always i always like to i mean i always like to remind people that 2006 was you know it was a very different even though it doesn't seem in some ways doesn't seem that long ago um it was a very different era and uh um you know this was george w bush was president and and it's just i it was a much more um, restrict. It's restricted, inhibited era. Uh-huh. It was much more inhibited. Um, and I had been. I was an architecture student, and I also worked as an architect. I dabbled in publishing, sort of as an intern. I was a miserable architect. I was a happy architecture student, but I was a miserable architect. And I, I sort of wanted to create my own fantasy architecture world in in a magazine and i wanted to use the magazine as a as a, as the medium for that and kind of bring some levity and fun and subversion into this uh, you know this overall feeling of inhibition that i felt both in my personal you know or, or professional um identity but also in, in culture overall 
Um, and uh, and that's how Pinup started. It kind of it really was like it was almost like a therapeutic uh, <laughs> endeavor more than anything else. Um, and 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 the and the magazine was my my uh, my cure in a way. So. Um, and, and so, so tell me, I mean, 15 years later, do you feel cured or, or is the cure <laughs> ongoing? <laughs> you know, they say analysis is never, is never uh, finished, right? So I, I guess I'm still, I'm still deep in it. Um, the, it. I think I've definitely satisfied the, um, the, some of the urges that led to the first issue, for sure. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I really had no idea what I was, I really had no idea what I was doing. I, w- I was almost 30. So, you know, if, 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 I don't know, sometimes, you know, I talk to people who, also people who work for me, they feel old when they, when they you know, when, when they near 30 and they feel like they already need to have accomplished something. And I was like, well, you know, it didn't start until I was 30 either. So, mm-hmm. you know, I like, and I had absolutely no idea. I was, I was working full time in a big architecture office and I had no idea what I was doing. And I just, Kind of put a little bit of the knowledge I had gathered at working for Fantastic Man and Butt Magazine, and uh, and applied it to architecture. But there were no art, you know, I had no business plan. I had it was nothing. It was it really was more like a remote control, you know, like a, like in trance, like not really thinking. Across those fifteen years, was there a point? Was this a tipping point when you suddenly it became something that you realized, well, that you could drop your full-time job and you could sort of concentrate more entirely on the magazine and the surrounding in- endeavors involved with it? Well, I think, you know, it was a gradual, a gradual um, evolution. I think, you know, already after the first issue came out, I, I didn't even know, there was no plan even for a second issue. I mean, I knew that I wanted to do more than one, but I, I didn't really, you know, I was like, oh, let's see how the, this first one goes. <laughs> And um, so already that was like a real, it was like, you know, people's reaction to the first one was really positive. Got pressed for it. And, and, you know, I think that's when I thought, oh, well, I guess this is more of a thing than I thought. Can you just quickly talk us through in case somebody's listening who who doesn't really know the magazine? Sorry, yes. Um, Well, a pinup is a... And strictly speaking, it's an architecture and design magazine. Um, it is, uh, you know, I think the sort of the core publication is um, uh, print. It's a biannual title. Um, it is the format is roughly uh, the size of, uh, you know, a letter, an A4 letter size, a little bit wider and a little bit shorter. Um, the average number of pages is about... 200, um, and uh, although the early ones, I think the first one had 90 or 80 pages, um, and the, um, the subject matter, like I said, is architecture, but it's architecture through a sort of, this is the complicated part, <laughs> um, architecture through, I think it's more, it's less about architecture proper and more about uh, the culture around architecture. Um, and, you know, whether that's cool or ideas, um, you know, or, or visual projects that maybe aren't immediately categorized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, th- I think the, the, the thing to f- 
that I would say about it is that it's, I mean, if, in a sense, if you think of an architecture magazine and you immediately think of large pictures of either finished buildings done, shot very artfully or else um, complex kind of computer-generated mock-ups and, and it's all about the... the uh, the scale and the grandeur. I mean, what what you're talking about is very much the kind of more the 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 rest of architecture, the culture of it, the ideas, the themes, the the, the thinking. But then you know there there is a history of, of Jeremy. Sorry, about, I should maybe in this like the the title of the magazine pin up is um, already points to that because it is you know especially in architecture when you do a pin up. And it's you know it's not a completed project. You do a pin up before you turn in your final submission. You know you pin it all up on the wall and you see okay it's it's a work in progress essentially. Um, so that's kind of the overall feel that we uh, mm-hmm. I together with a few people that were involved at the time wanted to convey with the. With the uh, yeah, which which makes absolute sense. Although, I mean, in the context of magazines, when you think of pinup magazine, it's yes. <laughs> um, certainly when, if, if you try googling it. <laughs> Although we're moving up in the Google, we're moving up in the Google uh, search results. Uh, well, it used to be we used to be on like page five, and now I think we're like the second uh, uh-huh. entry. Those progress over fifteen years. Over those fifteen years. Um, you know, I'm sure you've had ups and downs, and right now it's an up. It's 15 years. It's a great anniversary. But when we're talking about magazines, we tend to focus on the big successes and the achievements. What's been the failure? When's when was the low point? Was there ever an occasion when you thought, "I I, I can't. I, this has got to stop. I'm going to have to cease." Or, or or any point where the cure wasn't working? Oh, for sure. I think there's been. Uh, you know, I think when you're an independent publisher, you you do there are always moments where you're like, "Why am I even doing this?" You know, "Why am I doing this to myself <laughs> and 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 the people around me?" Because it um, you know it can be quite uh, taxing uh, sometimes. Like many other independent magazines, print magazines, uh, it took us a while to translate the format that we built and the identity that we built around print publication and be able to translate that into an online voice. And whether that's social or whether that's um, website, uh, I think it's, you know, because ultimately, the you know, it's it, conceptually, it's a different sort of uh, thinking. And when, you, when, you're, when you've trained yourself, to think in you know, biannual cycles and, and and creating a very kind of complete, close uh, kind of proposal in a, in a way, kind of, you know, it, 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 the, the vastness and the flatness of, of um, digital is, is very confusing. And, um, and I think it took a while for us to kind of understand how we can Mm-hmm. Uh, translate that voice to to digital. If you were to uh, pinpoint one aspect of that that you would advise anyone to to follow through on, could you suggest something? You know, I think the over the fifteen years, pinup has uh, uh, you know undergone evolution from uh, you know subversive uh, um, element of of a of a 
of a status quo in architecture and design to go to being, you know, and with print as a medium to, and you have to remember in 2006, they were, you know, obviously there was, you know, there were smartphones already, but people were still relying um, on print as an actual, you know, as a daily medium for, for, mm -hmm. um, for getting the news, you know? Um, and so print wasn't that exotic as it is now. I think print now is a luxury and, and has a sort of air of exotic, almost exotic, uh, you know. Um, but in 2006, that was not the case. Uh, it already, people already thought it was crazy to start a print magazine in 2006, but um, it, you know, it still was the, the, the carrier of information, uh, one of the main carriers of information. So I think this transformation from or evolution from being a um, part of a or sort of like a part of a certain sasco and then trans going into being kind of something almost like a luxury object or like like a luxury um, item has has been probably the, the biggest evolution for us, and I think that has also affected the way. We, we have a presence on a digital presence because now you you know any information that we want to get out there we, we can do it digitally so we actually really make sure that what we produce in print is very specific to print you know and it is, is actually becomes a, almost a not almost becomes a physical experience as much as a as a mm -hmm. intellectual experience you know in a very literal sense, in, in the recent issues, you've been developing the, the more um, more playful aspect of print with the, with the zigzag edge. Yes. Um, there's been one or two things like this, which are absolutely kind of pinpoint that. Well, I think this is, and I, I think this is really important to point out that um, since the, not this anniversary issue, but since the one before the zigzag edge, pinup 29, um, uh, Ben Gans has been the art director for pinup and uh, there's a huge age gap <laughs> between him and me. Um, and it's, it's, he really has, you know, what I was describing with growing up with print as still as being an among carrier of news and, you know, sort of main medium that you're used to on a daily basis. He has not, you know, he, for him, print really is something special. And you can see how he thinks about paper and the, as the object, uh, really as an object, as, a, as an experience rather than a carrier of information, I mean, you know, like just a, mm -hmm. a, a carrier of news or, or you know, content. It's, it's a real, it's an interesting shift in, in conceptual shift as well. And I think it shows in, in the design now as well. Yeah. Every, every issue has this sort of very um, extremely uh, experiential qualities. And uh, well, which brings us to to, to the thirtieth uh, anniversary issue, um, which has um, does have some very specific physical elements. It, it comes in a transparent plastic uh, kind of uh, I don't know what you call it, a protective sleeve or protective sleeve to protect the legacy. <laughs> yes, it is the legacy issue. Um, uh, but then it's also got it's got curved corners on the edges and. Um, well, I think again to go back to what I was just talking about the you know we the, the revolution issue was the one before which had the zigzag edge which 
said people, I mean, I've never, people were just crazy about the zigzag edge. Mm-hmm. It also cost a lot of fortune to, to produce it. <laughs> uh, but it, it, the reactions it, it provoked were, uh, I definitely did not expect, and uh, positive throughout. But, you know, you, you do ask yourself, what are, what are you going to do next, right? Um, and uh, uh, as we were experimenting with the issue, we, you know, we didn't really think about physical alteration to the cover yet. But as we, I think we, we uh, Ben was determined for, to, to have this sort of plastic cover because, it, you know, it kind of allowed to, for a lot of different formats, but to unify them. And, and also this idea of protection, you know, like, you, mm-hmm. um, you know, we hope that people consider the, the, the magazine as a, something that they would not throw away right away. Uh, in the collection, the sleeve obviously protects it, but also it has a mm-hmm. this rounded corner. There's a approachability to it. You know, there's a something, um, and th- this is something that I'm actually really excited about is um, how it almost like it almost feels like culture, general culture has come closer to what Pinup always wanted to be more than ever before in the 15 years that we've been doing it, where, like, I think, um, you know, the the idea is the sort of, like, the idea of queering the the, the discourse and architecture and to make it the, the disciplines open for many different voices. I think this is something that um, people always thought was always kind of funny and, and original, but I think now people really understand it. And so, um, in a way, these rounded edges to me also represent this the uh, comfort that people now take with what Pinup is proposing. That, that, I think the point you made there is really interesting. One, this idea, because we talk a lot about magazines and how how they change, and in, in having that, in, in sort of following that direction, you, the, the, I think often the assumption is that the context into which they're publishing remains static. But of course, that's that's the whole the whole context in every sense. The the, the rest of the of the, mag, uh, the the architecture publishing press, the, the increased coverage online, everything else is changing. The the practice of architecture, the 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 regardless of the trends, the developments in in materials and all the other things, everything is forever changing. Well, I think you know, a pinup is a. I think for many for many years, people really respected Pinup, but they didn't always know what it was because it is in between things a little bit. It is in between disciplines and and um, it occupies a space that is like not 100% clearly defined. And um, and I, I think ultimately that has been its strength because it, it also is conceptually um, or intellectually kind of Porous and it lets in a lot of different influences, design, uh, you know, different voices. It has, you know, it, it doesn't have this sort of monolithic um, voice that, uh, you know, other. And I, I, to be between you and me, I'm always very jealous of people who have a very set, you know, um, voice and, and, and speak with that authority. I, I, I always have a difficulty. I always want, you know, a lot of different things. And collect the different things at once and and give them and almost have them share the same platform so um 
I think this multiplicity is, is uh, I think people finally understand it. <laughs> But but but, the, but the, I mean this is what this is what comes after fifteen years. But I think the the other thing, I'm sure you're conscious of, and, and in a sense that you know t- titling this the legacy issue kind of nods to it. But there is an authority to the magazine now, and it and it's related in the in in the uh, in the in the issue in terms of uh, there's two big list pieces. One is the thirty objects. Yes. Which of course lends a certain. I mean. To have done that in the first issue might have been absurd, but after 15 years, you have an authority and a, and a kind of context within, within which you can say that, you can offer that. But you also have the list, um, you uh, invited 30 people, uh, 30 photographers, artists, designers, to present, uh, to each have one copy of the magazine and present it visually. Um, talk us through those two pieces, if you can. Well, the first one you mentioned, the 30 objects, I realised as we were putting the magazine together is that Pinup has also been, you know, and, and unconsciously maybe at the beginning, been a document, you know, document of design and architecture production of a specific time. You know, it's, it's very much kind of documents what's, what's happening mm-hmm. uh, at the time and becomes kind of an archive of sort, right? And uh, even more so because it's paper, because, you know, it, it, it's harder to delete. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, or alter uh, uh, afterwards. And so from this idea of, because of, uh, I, I, somehow I wanted to celebrate the, the, the 15 years and I thought, well, maybe if we celebrate it through objects that relate to things that we've published in the issue. And, and, and then, cause we've, you know, we've witnessed many trends uh, through, through the past 15 years, um, you know, from especially in like design and architecture, like, uh, I don't know, the, from millennial pink to, you know, to um, the sort of eco-optimism in design and, um, you know, many uh, sort of a neo-brutalism, you know, a lot of these sort of phenomena that has have popped up over the past 15 years, including, you know, very banal things, but ubiquitous things like the iPhone or the drone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all objects that have... Um, that really become available to consumers over the past uh, 20 years in the 21st century um, and in the 15 years that uh, Pinup has been operating. And they also all helped shape Pinup. The other thing that you mentioned is uh, the list of the 30 covers, or actually 29 covers. So what we did is we, we gave, we went into the archive and we took out all the old issues and instead of you know showing them again, as is, um, we actually we sent them to photographers and artists and asked them to reshoot them or to reinterpret them in some way. And so it's a, it's our cover gallery, but reshot essentially. And some people, uh, you know, just did very beautiful still lives and of, of past covers, and others really went uh, wild with it. Of the two lists, the, the first list, obviously, you're very much. Several of you having a conversation, and I'm sure there was some heated conversation along the way. But you, but you end up with 30 items that you, you're happy represent what you're doing. But then when you're handing over your magazines to 30 other people and saying make something, um, 
you know, I mean, there's there's, there's one by Francesco Nazardo where he's just covered it in chips and ketchup <laughs> uh, from McDonald's, and and, yeah. and it's kind of you know, and it happens to be in a plastic wrapper, so it kind of yeah, I know, I, but you know, I didn't realize that later. Actually, I was almost a little bit disappointed that he left it in the plastic wrapper. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I think what one of the my worst horror for an anniversary was, you know, I. I Obviously, we work a lot with Italian design companies, and they love Italian design companies love anniversaries. They always have mm-hmm. fifty years and seventy years, and they always like you know they always tell you the story of the family. The, the yeah. <laughs> well, they started with you know just you know one chair, and then it became you know and then the factory, and you know and and my worst horror for this anniversary was to do something like that. This sort of you know like self important. Um, chronology that really no one is interested in but you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, that I, I, this cover gallery for me was also a little bit like an act of desecrate, desecration, self desecration. Uh, uh-huh. uh, so that you know people would just kind of like have fun with it and, and be a little bit stupid as well. Uh, and you know some some people were more respectful. Some people were actually a little bit too respectful for my type, uh, <laughs> you know. But I think it was it was really uh, it was really fun to see what they come back with. That piece, as you rightly say, is, is twenty nine covers plus we've got the thirtieth one that's out now. Uh, you're already working on on the thirty first. Uh, so so what is next? Issue thirty one is is there's this uh, you go into yet another um, an, an, another run of 10 covers towards your 40th and is, are you going to do something different are you change changing things up or well i think we're changing things up uh always sort of around the issue you know like in, in business wise and in the way uh you know pinup is active in in uh also digitally uh, and doing projects uh film projects and so on and so forth but specifically for for the print issue which, you know, to me now has, I mean, you know, to, to draw like a, a slightly inaccurate fashion analogy, but now to me, the print issue is like the couture line of, of pinup operation, right? It's where you, instead of the, the, the most expensive, it's also probably the one that starting to make the least money, but you kind of have to have it because it's also, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a, it's like a little, Laboratory. It's where you test ideas, and also it kind of that's the part that defines your DNA. You know, at least I mean that's how I look at it. I think really the print issue is is our DNA capsule, and um, so I I can't tell you what it's going to be like physically. What what Pinup Thirty One will be, um, but I editorially I know that there will be uh, there will be a big change. Uh, which I can't talk about now. So we're just going to have to do this interview again in September. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, listen, Felix, thank you so much for joining us and sharing. Well, actually, you know what? Not in September. Let's do it in, in November oh. when the issue is out. <laughs> we, we can make it a monthly event. Exactly. Every Monday. <laughs> cool. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll, yeah, we'll be we, we, um, watching with eagle eyes what's going to happen in September. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much to Felix for joining us. After this word about our friends at Park, we'll take a look back at this episode's back issue.
London Printers Park Communications play a key part in the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers turn their dreams into reality. They've recently done just that for the new magazines Oath, Dropped and Kindling, the parents and kids spin-off from Kinfolk. They've also been busy with established favourites like Port, Sapphire and Kinfolk. As well as helping you achieve the highest creative standards, Park are fully committed to helping you produce your magazine in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner. Check their website for details. Search Park Communications. Just like my culture, Park love magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor this podcast. So our back issue this time is the first of the series of 16 daily magazines produced for the London 2012 Olympic Games. As we sit here today, the, uh, the Tokyo Olympic Games are in full swing, and many of us have been looking back the nine years to 2012 and remembering it as such a positive time. Looking back with the benefit of the warm feelings of nostalgia, it seems crazy how controversial the visual identity for the London Games was, and the magazine embraced it fully using a bespoke typeface and the kind of clashing angled um, planes uh, all, all coinciding with each other. Um, and yet now I can't help but look back at it and feel really, um, as I say, very warm about it. I was less sure about it at the time. Um, but I was keen to bring Marina on this just because she was working at the company uh, Wolf Ollins that actually did that identity. You weren't involved yourself, though. I wasn't involved, no, in... Um I remember how incredibly controversial that was. Um, I, I I didn't work on it, but I, I think what is interesting is looking back, and I was never so much of a fan of it, and, and um, you know, that I think that's fine, but I, I find it interesting that you can't help but remember it present in the olympics and when you see especially the typeface in signage on the on the ground and all of that and it gave us a voice in a way that because it was so memorable mm-hmm. um and when you see today the olympics you don't even re- notice any it's just convention isn't it there isn't any statement or any thing that connects you as a brand to where it's happening. In Tokyo, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's very flat, isn't it? It's very well, flat, uh, yeah. And one of the things, it, that's exactly, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, I was uh, lucky enough to get along and see some of the games in London and that typeface and that visual identity was so present, not least in the magazine here, which, and it does adapt very well. And in fact, inside, they're, they're really concentrating on the Futura rather than the, um, the, the London Games typeface that features on the cover, the Angley one. But nonetheless, it's, it really, as I say, it's infused with the warmth of, of nostalgia, but it also does, it's memorable. Yeah. And, and, and whenever watching the Olympics now uh, from Tokyo, there is so much typography and so many words and the representation of Tokyo and numbers on the On the running and, tracks, yeah. it's amazing. And I remember that was one of the moments that I thought it was cool. So yeah. even though I think, you know, like the logo and stuff, I didn't quite embrace it so much, but... Um, I think, yes, there was the undeniable presence, which also London is a place that can be a bit more edgy and a bit more um, provocative. So I think the intention and the thinking was uh, very interesting. And, and with with time also, you can see how these things come to life. You almost, as a designer, don't have much control over how it's going to be used. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Paula always says that you create brands that you don't quite know what 
uh, you don't quite know what they will become. And I mm -hmm. think that's interesting to see it over time now and how, in a way, unforgettable it's been. It's, it, it's, it is interesting because it's all about context, isn't it? The, you, you, you let a, a, a design out into the old brand, out into the open, and it sort of morphs a bit, but it's also the world around it morphs. And so looking back nine years at London 2012, there's all these other meanings and everything's so loaded. Yeah, and it was a much better time than and, where yeah, we are yeah, today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're all like, oh, that was not bad, was it? We were quite... <laughs> Well, it had its... Um, yeah, yeah, it it's a its different time. Different time, different exactly. Time. So these magazines were produced on a daily basis, uh, 16 of them across the Olympics, published by Haymarket Publishing, uh, art directed by Chris Barker, who did a fantastic job, uh, and I assume didn't sleep for 16 nights. Um, but lovely to look back at that and the, the, the glow that it brought to us and uh, the power that such a thing can do. But listen, thank you, Marina, for joining us again. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you. So lovely. I absolutely love Macaccio. So brilliant to be here. Thank you. Lovely. Well, thank you. Um, that's, that brings us to the close for the episode. Um, just need to thank, uh, to thank Marina again, to thank uh, Felix for joining us, uh, thank our sound editor, Sam, uh, and thank you for listening. Look out for news uh, of our events. Uh, if you want to know about them and be the first to know about them, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Um, thank you for listening and uh, see you soon. Bye.